often, of course, a psalm that we sing uh, as a psalm of confession, uh, as David is confessing his great egregious sin with Bathsheba. But some of the themes that we'll be considering tonight, um, David recognizes the um, just deserts of the sin that he has committed, and he uh, pleads to the Lord for mercy. So we'll be considering um, some of those things this evening. But as we prepare to open God's word, let's now pray and ask that he would bless it to us. Let's pray. Almighty and everlasting God, our Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that we are sinners, conceived and born in sin, unable of ourselves to do any good. But we do repent of our sins and seek your grace to help us in our remaining weaknesses. Through the teaching of your word, which we confess with the church throughout the ages, satisfy our hunger and quench our thirst with your refreshing truth, that we, with all our hearts, may love and serve you with our Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, the one and only true God who lives and reigns forever. Amen. You may be seated. And if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34, we'll be reading the first nine verses. This will be our sermon text for this evening. Exodus chapter 34, verses 1 through 9. And pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning. And come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children, to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. The word of the Lord. Well, Dostoevsky, in one of his books, recounts an interesting uh, monastic poem, which apparently was very popular among Russian Orthodox um, several hundred years ago. And uh, the basic storyline of the poem is that the archangel, Michael, takes Mary on a tour through hell. And she sees all the torments of hell as she is going through, and she is 
she's extremely disturbed by these things, by, by the torments that are going on and by the suffering. And so she goes before God and she begs God, please forgive those who are being tormented, who are suffering. And initially, God is uh, reticent to grant them forgiveness, but as she continues to plead, he agrees to grant some respite. From Good Friday through Pentecost, every year they will be relieved from their suffering, these people who have been condemned. And when God pronounces this judgment, the response of all those who have been condemned is to say, just and true art thou, O Lord, that thou hast judged thus. Now, this is not uh, a poem that we would necessarily want to base uh, much, if any, of our theology on, and it's, of course, not a true story, but it is an interesting thought experiment in some ways. The response when God uh, sets down this judgment of respite is that he is just and true to have done this, to have given these people some level of forgiveness without reference to their personal obedience to the law during their lives on earth or without reference to their faith in Christ. And so it's an interesting thought experiment. Is this really just for God to have granted this level of forgiveness? Well, that's what we're thinking about today in Lord's Day 4. We're thinking about the justice of God, Scripture's teaching on justice. This is the last Lord's Day of the misery and guilt section of the catechism, so the misery is almost over. We get next week to deliverance. Um, But, uh, of course, as Lord's Day 1 says, it's very important for us. One of the things that we need in order to live and die in the joy of the comfort is to understand how great our sins and misery are so that we can understand the uh, great deliverance which Christ has worked for us. Lord's Day 2 asks the question, summarized the law of God as, as our Lord summarized it for us in Matthew 22, and asks the question, can you live up to all this perfectly? Can you love your neighbor? Can you love God perfectly? And the answer, of course, is no. We are inclined by nature to hate God and our neighbor. In Lord's Day 3, then, it asks the natural question, how did humans become this way? Was this how humans were created? In other words, is it God's fault that humanity is this way? Did he create them, inclined to hate God and neighbor? Or did something else happen that caused humanity to become this way? And of course, the answer is it it was through the fall of our first parents, Adam and Eve. And since then, each person comes into the world conceived and born in sin. The last question of Lord's Day 3, question and answer 8 of the Catechism talks about uh, total inability, the total inability of the natural person to do any good before God, to do anything which is pleasing to God, unless they are born again, unless they are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. So now we finish up today in Lord's Day 4, the guilt section talking about the justice of God, the justice of God in his law, in still requiring perfect obedience to his law. The justice of God in punishing sin and the relation of God's justice to his mercy. David recognized that the justice of God would be to condemn him. But of course, he cried out still for mercy. And in Exodus 34, the name of God is both justice and mercy. So we will think thirdly how those relate. So our three points for this evening, God's righteous requirement. First point. Second point is God's just judgment. And our third point, God's justice and mercy. And we'll follow uh, the following, basically, the three questions of, of the catechism under this Lord's Day. 
So first, we'll consider God's righteous requirement. Question and answer nine of the catechism is really answering an objection to question and answer eight. And the objection goes like this. If, it, if the doctrine of inability is true, if it is true that the natural person, apart from the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, is completely unable to do any good before God, then how is it fair for God to still require this obedience that people are not able to render to him? Many of you have probably heard this objection, and some of you may have wondered this yourself, right? We confess in Lord's Day 2 that the summary of the law is love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And in Lord's Day 3, we say, but you can't do this. And so the natural question then that Lord's Day 4 raises is, is this fair? Is it fair for God to still require obedience to his law? Well, we know from Scripture that God's law is still binding, that Christians and non-Christians both are bound by God's law, that it is still God's righteous requirement for all people. All people are commanded to love God and to love their neighbor as themselves. And every Lord's Day, just as we did this morning, as as Dr. Horton read the Ten Commandments for us, every Lord's Day, as we read the law, we acknowledge that if we are honest with ourselves, none of us have lived up to these commandments perfectly, that none of us have loved God or loved our neighbor perfectly. And in fact, we are not able to do this. Paul says in Romans 3, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Imagine that I give a sharp knife to a three-year-old, and I command this three-year-old, do not hurt yourself or anyone else with this knife. And, of course, the three-year-old goes off and hurts himself and someone else with the knife. Whose fault would it be that he did that? Would that be my fault or the three-year-old's fault? Of course it's not his fault. He doesn't know any better. He's unable to obey this command that I've given him. And many people think this is how God giving us the law is, that God should have known better than to give us a law that we could not keep. And so that when we do not keep it, when we hurt ourselves or other people through disobedience to the law, that this should be blamed on God. That... He should never have given us a law that we cannot obey. But the problem with this way of thinking, as the Catechism points out, is that God created us with the ability to keep the law. We talked about this in Lord's Day 3. The Catechism talks about this in Lord's Day 3, right? That God created humans in his own image, in true knowledge and righteousness and holiness. And so Adam and Eve were not created like incapable three-year-olds at creation, They were righteous and holy. They were inclined toward the good. They were inclined to obey God's law. God's requirement of perfect obedience was not too difficult for them or unreasonable for them. And they chose to disobey. They chose to eat the fruit that God had commanded them not to eat. They knew the law, and they were able to keep it perfectly. And yet they chose to give in to the temptations of the devil and to plunge themselves and all humanity into sin and ruin and misery. And so God requiring perfect obedience to his law is not like giving a sharp knife to a three-year-old. Adam and Eve knew exactly what to do with the law. They knew to obey it. God created them with the ability to obey it. And so this way of thinking about God's requirement of obedience to his law is all wrong. Instead, think about if you go to the bank and deposit $100, and you come back the next day and you ask to withdraw that $100. 
and the bank teller says to you, well, I can give you $50, but immediately after you left yesterday, I burned 50 of the dollars that you gave me. What would you say to that bank teller? You might say to him something like, well, I deposited $100 with you yesterday, and so either you or the bank needs to make up that $50 that's missing. But then what if the bank teller said to you, that is extremely unfair that you would ask me to make up that $50. I already told you I burned it. And so it's unreasonable of you to expect that I would give you the full $100 when I have done away with $50 of it. This would be absolutely ridiculous if somebody did this to you, wouldn't it? This is not your fault that this person has burned the money. He's telling you that you're being unfair, but he's the one who is being unfair. This was his own decision that he made to do this. And in a similar way, God created Adam and Eve with the ability to keep the law. They chose to disobey. This was their own decision. God didn't change. His law did not change. His requirement of obedience to his law did not change. And so if we object that God is unfair to require obedience to his law, we are the ones who are being unfair. We're asking God to lower his standard because of our sin in Adam. God is not unfair to require that all people obey his law. He is just and righteous to require this. It would be unjust, in fact, for God to lower his standard because of our sin. Ultimately, this would be to deny himself a violation of his nature because the law itself is a reflection of the nature of the lawgiver. And so it is right and just for God to require perfect obedience to his law, even if we cannot perfectly obey. This is why reading the law each Lord's Day should cause us to recognize our own sins and should drive us outside of ourselves to look for a salvation outside of us. This is why it's so important that we read the gospel each Lord's Day after the reading of the law to remind us of the one who kept the law perfectly, who did live up to this righteous requirement, who did perfectly obey the Lord, Jesus Christ. And so for you who put your faith in Christ, the law does not come against you in condemnation as it does for those who are outside of Christ. As Christians, we are still bound to strive to keep God's law more and more each and every day to put to death the old self that still clings, the sinful nature that still clings. But we do this as those who have already been declared righteous and who already have a claim to the eternal life which Christ has won for us. Thanks be to God that he has not lowered his standard, but instead that he has made a way for sinners like us who cannot obey his law perfectly to still have salvation and eternal life through Jesus Christ. We think secondly then of of, uh, God's just judgment as we turn to question 10 of the catechism. Now as we just saw in question 9, God is not unfair to require obedience to his law even after the fall. And now in question 10, we consider God's just judgment against sin, the punishment which sin as a violation of God's law deserves, which it merits. The Catechism says that God is terribly angry with the sin we are born with, as well as our actual sins. God is terribly angry. His wrath is against sin. He hates sin. He cannot look upon sin. In our passage in Exodus 34, We read, God will by no means clear the guilty. He will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. This is a statement of extreme wrath 
against sin and severe punishment against sin. In Romans 6, Paul tells us the wages of sin is death. This is the punishment for sin is death. And this is also the punishment which God promised in the garden. In the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree, you will surely die. Scripture understands this death in a very comprehensive sense. And our catechism echoes this comprehensive sense of Scripture when it talks about the punishment for sin as both now and in eternity, as both temporal and eternal punishment. We can think about this in terms of temporal spiritual death, the loss of original righteousness, the separation from God that occurred with the fall. This is a punishment for sin. And all around us, we see the results of this loss of original righteousness, of this punishment for sin. All the inequality and injustice, all the grief and pain and hurt show us that sin has terrible consequences here and now in this life. Physical death is also a punishment for sin. The decay and ultimately the the death of our bodies is a temporal punishment for sin. God created us embodied creatures in the beginning, body and soul in unity, and he declared this very good. And with the fall came the beginning of the decay of our bodies. It was only after the fall that God said, you are dust, and to dust you will return. And we recognize, don't we, that death is not natural. This is why so many people fear death so much. And this is why for as long as we can recount in human history, we have been trying to fight against death and extend life in this world. Death is not natural. We recognize this. But these temporal punishments for sin, these punishments which are part of this life, are precursors, a foretaste, the beginning, really, of the eternal punishment for the wicked, for sin, eternal death, eternal separation from God, eternal suffering and pain. Christ talks about this eternal punishment for sin in Mark 9, 47 and 48. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Our catechism calls these punishments for sin just judgments of God against sin, that it is just for God to punish sin both now and eternally. And just as we talked about with our last point, just as many people think it is unfair for God to continue to require obedience to his law, many people think that it is unfair for God to punish sin. Perhaps it's fair to punish sin during this life, but eternal punishment for sin? Is that really fair? Eternal punishment for sins that we have committed in this life? One theologian who denies the doctrine of hell, who denies that scripture teaches this doctrine, says everlasting torment is intolerable from a moral point of view because it makes God into a bloodthirsty monster. This theologian clearly believes that it is unjust, that it is unfair for God to punish sin eternally. And our catechism is helpful in answering this objection as well. And we can skip down here for a moment to the second half of question 11, which says God's justice demands that sin committed against his supreme majesty be punished with the supreme penalty, eternal punishment of body and soul. 
Sin is a violation of the law of God. And the law of God is itself a reflection of the nature of God, the lawgiver. And God is so holy, he is so removed from sin that he cannot even look upon sin. Habakkuk 1.13 says, You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Sin is an offense against the most holy God, a God who is infinitely holy, and therefore it deserves the infinite penalty. And this may sound strange still, but if you think about it, we have a similar principle in our justice system. If somebody steals a car, we would expect they should get a lesser penalty than if they kill somebody else. And in the same way, if somebody kills an ordinary civilian, a citizen, versus killing the President of the United States, we would expect the justice system to be more severe on the person who kills the President. A punishment should be proportionate, we recognize this, to the severity of the crime and to the person against whom it is committed. But what if the offense is against the infinitely holy law of God and against the infinitely holy and majestic God himself? Only an infinite penalty is proportionate and appropriate to this crime, to this offense. And so God is just and fair in punishing sin, in punishing violations of his law both now and in eternity. He's a just judge whose judgments are always true and right. We sang about this in Psalm 98 at the beginning of our service. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. It is not unfair, it's not intolerable from a moral point of view, as the theologian whom I quoted earlier suggested. It would be intolerable from a moral point of view if God did not punish sin, if God did not mete out the just deserts which sin deserves. In a proportionate and appropriate way as crimes which are committed against God and against his law. To ask God not to punish sin is to underestimate his holiness and the severity of the crime which has been committed against him. Now, what does all this mean for the Christian? As Christians, we still experience the effects of sin in this life, don't we? We still experience sorrow and hurt, oftentimes inequality and injustice in this life. We even experience death at the end of this life. But we should not see these as punishments for sin in the same way that they are for unbelievers. The God that we serve is the infinitely holy and righteous and just God. The God who, is, who will punish sin. But this same God is also our Father for the sake of Christ. And so as we continue to struggle against sin in this life, there will be consequences for our sin. If a Christian lies on a job application and is found out, probably that person will not get the job. But the sufferings that we experience because of sin in this life are chastisements from a loving father rather than a payment for our sins. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12 says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son, in whom he delights. The payment for our sins has already been made on Calvary. When Christ took upon himself the full wrath of God against sin, paying the ultimate price for sin, dying, 
He bore the curse of Deuteronomy 27, that verse that's quoted in our catechism. Cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the things written in the book of the law. And we have not observed and obeyed all things written in the book of the law. Christ took that curse upon himself. The curse which we deserved, spiritual and temporal and physical, spiritual and physical and eternal, excuse me, death. And so even our death at the end of this life, as Dr. Horton talked about this morning, is not a payment for our sins. It is a dying to sins and an entering into eternal life, to use the words of our catechism. And so you who put your faith in Christ do not need to fear the sufferings of this life. They are but for a moment. You do not need to fear death. You do not need to fear hell. Your sins have been removed from you as far as the east is from the west. Christ has borne your punishment, both temporal and eternal. We move then to our last point for this evening, and this will be our shortest point since we've already touched on a lot of the issues that this will concern, but just to uh, make some of these things a little bit more clear here. Considering the justice and mercy of God, in the story which I began our time with, that, that monastic poem, Mary, as she sees the sufferings of hell and asks God simply to forgive those who are in hell, she's asking him to forgive them without reference to their personal obedience to the law or without reference to their faith in Christ, which they have exercised during this life. She's asking him, in essence, to show mercy at the expense of his justice. And in question 11 of the catechism, this is addressing another objection, an objection to question 10, which says that God's just judgment against sin may be death, may even be eternal death. But just like with Mary, so many wonder, why does God not just pardon sin? Why does it need to be punished at all? Yes, we understand that God is just, but surely God's mercy could just override his justice. Surely he's more merciful than he is just. Sin may deserve eternal punishment, but ultimately his mercy will win out and all will be forgiven. And this sounds really good, doesn't it? It would make conversations with non-Christians in a lot of cases a lot easier to be able to say something like this. Someone once asked me, a a non-Christian friend of mine, do you think I'm going to hell? And in that moment, that conversation would have been a lot easier in some ways if I could have simply said to him, you don't need to worry about it. God is more merciful than he is just. But ultimately, we cannot elevate one of God's attributes over another. We cannot say that God is more loving than he is holy or that he is more merciful than he is just. God is all his attributes. He is merciful. He is just. He is merciful in his justice, and he is just in displaying mercy. One does not trump the other. Listen again to Exodus 34, verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord's name is both mercy, one who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, and justice, one who will by no means clear the guilty. God is certainly merciful. This is an incredible pronouncement of his mercy. In fact, these verses come, this, this episode comes right on the heels of the golden calf episode, one of the worst instances of idolatry in Israel's history. And God promises mercy anyway. 
But we cannot separate this from his justice. God is just to punish sin, as we talked about. It is a direct affront to his holiness, and his justice demands that it would be punished. And so we need to hold both of these attributes together. And so, brothers and sisters, God, in his infinite wisdom, executed the plan of salvation which he had purposed from before the foundations of the world. The only plan which could save his people from their sins without denying his justice or his mercy, without doing violence to either one, he sent his own son into the world. I want to read just a few verses from Romans here as we wrap up our time together. Paul writes, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith. In Jesus. Brothers and sisters, God did not lower his righteous standard. The price for eternal life is still perfect obedience. The penalty for disobedience to God's law is still eternal death. He did not set aside simply the claims of his justice, but rather than looking to ourselves for these things, to pay our own penalty or for our own obedience, we look to Christ and the righteousness which is ours by faith in him, the penalty which has been paid by him. Let us give thanks that we serve a God who is perfectly merciful, pitying us in our sins and misery, condescending to save us, and a God who is perfectly just, who we can be sure will triumph over evil, who has already triumphed over evil, who will vindicate Christ and his church, and who who will most certainly Give the salvation which he has promised us by faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you that your name is both mercy and justice, that you never deny yourself by lowering your standard of obedience or by failing to judge justly and punish rightly. We recognize that we have sinned in Adam and have sinned ourselves against you time and time again, failing live up to your righteous requirement of obedience to your law. And so we recognize that as a result of this, we deserve condemnation and death. But we thank you that in your mercy, you have made a way to save us without compromising your perfect justice. Thank you that by faith alone, we are declared righteous and freed of the condemnation of the law and the punishment for sin through Christ's finished work. Please help us as we consider the great depths and misery from which you have saved us to live in gratitude and obedience to you, striving to obey your perfect and holy law more and more each and every day. Amen.